So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63, that should be page 479 if you're using that blue Bible. We're going to read in just a second Psalm 63. There was also a handout. I don't know if anybody, if some of you came in a little bit later, if you got it. Everybody raise up your handout that I gave you. Yeah, that one right there. So if you need a handout, there's a couple more back on the credenza. Looks like Wes is racing his way back there. And so um, they'll be able, you'll be able to get a copy there. So let's turn our Bibles to Psalm 63. Now, of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing. The Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. What I read to you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we ask this for the whole series, but also for this prayer, this, this sermon today. Oh, Lord, just as the disciples asked Jesus, so we ask, teach us to pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. There's actually three quotations, one for each point. You'll see those there. So this whole series is on prayer, and we're going to hit different aspects of it um, as we go through it, and I hope you find it very beneficial. You know, you heard it in our New Testament reading that Wes was reading in Acts 12. The early disciples were so much like us in that they knew they needed to be in prayer, especially for Peter's release. They gave themselves to prayer, but they anticipated little from prayer. I find that Really funny. I love that story. They're shocked that Peter actually, that God answered their prayer and Peter's set free. No, no, it's got to be his angel or something. I mean, it's a great story. I love it. It makes me laugh. It made Wes laugh. And it's a, it, it kind of gives you a chance to breathe a sigh of relief. The early Christians were just as doubtful at times about prayer as, as we can be. It's the exact same kind of people. So my friends, as we begin this seven-part series on prayer, my hope is that all of us will be encouraged to pray, be reinvigorated to pray, pick up new life regarding prayer. And so tonight we begin by answering the question, what is prayer? That's the question really for the night, or the overarching question. We're going to spend our time in Psalm 63. Now Psalm 63 verses 1-4, through 4, I have worked on for years memorizing it, but also I've used it often 
in my morning prayers. Oh God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, so I've looked for You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory. Because Your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise You. Thus will I bless You while I live. I will lift up my hands in Your name. I've used it for years as part of my praying, and I'm going to encourage you to do the same, and so I'll come back around to this encouragement to do so at the end of the sermon. But it's a huge psalm. It's a beautiful psalm, and it's very much about what is prayer in, in, a, in, a, in a very unique way. So um, during this series, you will probably see us referring to books throughout the whole series. There's just a ton of good books out there. Al Mohler wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer. It's called The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. I highly recommend the book. I wrote a, I think I wrote about it in the pastoral letter a few about a month ago. I would really recommend that book. But in that book, he says this, quote, Prayer is never an isolated event. When we pray, we convey our entire theological system. Our theology is never so clearly displayed before our eyes and before the world as in our prayers. Praying forces us to articulate our doctrines, convictions, and theological assumptions. That's a great statement. It actually goes along with this morning's sermon about being ruled and controlled by desire. We don't pray when we do pray. We don't get because we're only wanting to spend it on our passions. It exposes our theology our convictions, and so forth. And I think he's absolutely right. And all of that is really true here of David's prayer that's written out for us in Psalm 63. So, there's three points. You can see them on the back of your worship guide. And the first one is dry and desiccated. It's the first four verses. Again, I encourage you to have your Bibles open here. So notice those first four verses. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, and so forth. Richard Pratt wrote a book years ago called Pray With Your Eyes Open. And in that book he makes this statement, and this is the quotation I think is in the first point that you have there. Fruitful, life-giving prayer rests firmly on the foundation of recognizing our need for God. It begins with the attitude of a dependent spirit. It begins with an attitude of a dependent spirit. That's exactly how Psalm 63 commences. As, as David starts this out, it is clearly the idea, the attitude of a dependent spirit. And so Psalm 33, comm 63 commences, and it's uh, the first point that should draw us also into prayer in the same way, that attitude of a dependent spirit. Now notice that the backdrop to Psalm 63 is that David was out in the wide, weary, waterless wilderness. That's how this begins, that inscription, that inscription which is part of verse 1 in the Hebrew. So you know it's part of the inspired text. And it says, the Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And that shapes how the psalm goes. In fact, it comes out immediately in the first few verses. His, his being... Uh, out there in that wide, weary, waterless wilderness. And so he crafted this prayer for all of us to join our voices with his, and it is for all of us to dive into a dependent spirit with him. And so the first few verses are all the want God, need God kinds of words, and they move into the satisfied by God 
and satisfied with God language. So let me break it down. Here's the four subpoints, if you want to call them that. There's want God, need God, found God, enjoy God. I've worked hard at these things. You should be pleased with that, right? So notice verse one. It's the want God. Listen to that language. Oh God, you are my God earnestly or early, depending on your translation. Early I seek you is actually literally what it is in the Hebrew. The idea of first thing when I wake up in the morning, I go to seek you, right? So there's an earnestness there because he wants God, all right? Earnestly or early I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you, etc. So there's that earnest language. This is how I'm going to begin. Or maybe he meant early in his troubles, at the very beginning of his troubles. I early, earnestly seek you at the beginning of these troubles. Whatever it is, I want God. I want Him now. I mean, I want Him. There's a, there's a, a wanting aspect of this. And so there's the first part. The want God. Then comes the need God. And that comes in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Listen to the, to the language. My soul thirsts for you. Anybody ever been hiking and you forgot to take your water bottle? No. Good job. You're a good scout. Right. But if you've ever been out, or maybe you've been out working all day and you forgot, you just have not paid attention to your, to your water intake and you're just sweating a stream, right? And then next thing you know, you can't swallow, right? Your tongue is starting to swell. Have you ever been that thirsty? I've been that thirsty, yes. And notice that that's exactly David's language. You... Uh, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. You ever been in a situation where you didn't eat well that day and all your blood sugar decides to get up and pack its bags and leave and you start getting wobbly knees? Anybody else do this? Oh, yeah, okay, good. I'm not the only one, right? And you really start to feel faint. That's what he's, he's explaining or describing his need for God. I am fainting. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I used to love quoting this, especially when we were in Midland, Texas, because we were truly in the land where there was no water. That's the way it felt all the time. And so this psalm really became dear to me while we were there. And he just continues on with this, this need, God. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary. I've looked for you, beholding your power and your glory. There's that need, God, that want God and need God. And that shows up in his language. Why? Because this is the attitude of a dependent spirit. This is how he approaches prayer. This is what we do. What, what is prayer? First off, it is a dependent spirit. I want God. I desperately need Him. I don't want to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it. Who here needs God? I mean, it's a simple question. Who needs God? Yes! So every one of us should be able to pray this prayer. Right? Want God, need God. And then found God. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I found you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This found God, okay, He came into the sanctuary, He came into the tabernacle, and He found the Lord. He drew near. Remember today's promise. Draw near to God and He will what? Draw near to you. He drew near to the Lord. He was desperate for Him. His, his attitude of dependent spirit. He came to the Lord. He, he needed God. He voiced His need and His want as well. You know, sometimes you can need and not want. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you can need and not want. David did both. I want you and I need you. That's a good place to be. Right? 
And that's and so God, he finds God. There he is in the sanctuary, and so now he can praise him. Your steadfast love is better than life. Think about how God describes himself over in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, whose steadfast love endures for a thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what David found. The God of steadfast love as he came to the God he wanted and he came to the God he needed, he found him. And then he enjoyed God. He enjoys God. There's the last one, enjoys God. And that's verse, it includes verse 3, but also verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live in your hand. In, in, in your name, I will lift up my hand. Just the enjoyment of God. In fact, that theme will stay through the rest of this psalm, or at least a big portion of this psalm, actually enjoying God. Now that's a great question to ask, and I'll come back around to it in a minute, but think about it. Do you enjoy God? Don't answer. Answer your head. It's a good question. Do you enjoy God? When I was at my first church in the PCA, I was having a lot of troubles. This is a, maybe this will help. I was having a lot of troubles, and I mean, I was at my wit's end. I was ready to commit uh, ministerial suicide. In other words, resign and walk away forever. It was, I was done. And I just couldn't figure out what the problem was. Finally, a fellow minister came to me and we were talking and he was listening to me boo-hoo and he said, Mike, if you were not the pastor of this church, would you be a member of it? That's a scary question. And I thought about it I said, no. He said, then you need to leave. That was a great question. So I ask myself that question. I do. I actually ask myself that question. I asked it in Midland when we were in Midland, and I asked it here. And the answer is yes. <laughs> I just want to see if you're listening. But it's an enjoyment question. Do you Really, right? If, if I wasn't the pastor, would I be a member here? That's a great question. But it's, So it's the same kind of enjoyment question. And so that's just it. Do you enjoy God? That's what drives David to need God to want God, to need God, and to seek Him and find Him. He enjoys Him. So the prayer begins with an I am dry and desiccated. And it's this focus of, without you, I have nothing. It's the attitude of a dependent spirit. My friends, how often we come to God in prayer with a, the wrong attitude. And I'm worth it attitude. I must have it attitude. It has this underlying subtle lie to it. I am entitled because I'm so important. Attitude. Instead, we're to come with the attitude of a dependent spirit in prayer. I want you. I need you. And so this dependent spirit prayer we find here in Psalm 63, verses 1-4, through finds God then slaking our thirst and sating our needy craving. So, S-words. I worked hard at those S-words, right? So, you know, you slake your thirst when you're parched. You go drink water, it slakes your thirst. When you're hungry, you eat, and that sates your appetite. So there you go, slaked and sated. And so it's verses 5 through 8, and you can see that there. My soul will be satisfied. Listen to the food language. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I like fat and rich food. My heart resonates with this verse. When I buy barbecue for the elders and deacons we will eat before our meeting, they always ask me, well, what kind of uh, brisket do you want? You want you want dry or moist? <laughs> Dude, moist. 
I like fat and rich food. It's tasty, right? And it feels substantial, and I don't sit around feeling. So that resonate with that. That's, that's the point, right? So you satisfy me. You, uh, my soul will, will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. There's the joy part. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the night watches, etc. I love the way that Leonard Ravenhill put this. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't always like reading Leonard Ravenhill. Does anybody know who Leonard Ravenhill was? He was really instrumental in uh, Keith Green. He actually moved in next door to Keith Green or right down the road from Keith Green and taught Keith Green. So those of I just dated myself there, right? And so that's why you see you saw Keith Green actually publishing several of Leonard Ravenhill's articles. So I don't always like him or what I'm reading from him, but I really love this. And you'll hear some from this book, uh, Revival Praying. There's a couple of one-liners that I think are really significant. And here's one. Prayer links man's impotence to God's omnipotence. What a great statement. Prayer links man's impotence to God's omnipotence. You know, J.I. Packer put it more beautiful, I think, in some ways, in his book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and we always paraphrase that as everybody on their knees is, is a Calvinist, right? You're always praying. You're always, when you're praying, you're praying like a Calvinist because you believe God can actually change hearts, right? And so, but I think that that goes with what Leonard Ravenhill is saying. Prayer links man's impotence to God's omnipotence. So as you look at verses 5-8, through eight, you'll notice that God satisfies, God saves, God sustains. God satisfies, God saves, God sustains. In verse 5 and 6, God satisfies. We already talked about the fat food language that makes David then talk about, uh, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Why would you praise with joyful lips? Because you find God enjoyable. God satisfies, He satisfies. God satisfies. So I praise Him with joyful lips. But God satisfies. Then God saves. Verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. God saves. You, you, will, um, you have been my help, in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. And what a great picture, because that's the picture of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was outside Jerusalem? Right before the triumphal entry, right around that time, you remember what does he do? He weeps over Jerusalem, and what does he say? I, I've been like a mother hen wanting to gather you under my wings. Right? Under my wings. What happens there? Everybody raise chickens? Right? So mama chicken, the hen, she gets out there, and she, as soon as the, as soon as the chicken hawk flies by, she gets out there and gathers her chicks to cover them up to protect them from the hawk. Right? It's that same kind of saving language. And so that's what David says. You've been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. You cannot miss it. This is the attitude of a dependent spirit. I cannot save myself. You are my only hope in life and in death. Right? That's the point. And then God sustains. And that's verse 8. My soul clings to you. My, your right hand upholds me. And so... Um, I love reading that language in verse 8. God, you, God sustains us. There, when I, well, I'll tell you about it in a minute. So, in prayer, then, my impotence, in all this language, my impotence is linked to God's omnipotence. He's the one who satisfies, He's the one who saves, He's the one who sustains. My impotence is linked to God's omnipotence. God is the one who slakes and sates my soul deep thirst and hunger. 
most of our casting about for meaning and significance is because we're looking for love in all the wrong places. But I think that John Piper gets it right when he tweaks our Shorter Catechism's first answer, and he tweaks it this way. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And our catechism is glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I appreciate what, what he put. Glorifying God by enjoying Him forever. So we're back to enjoyment again. Do you enjoy God? That's a huge part of what prayer is. Dwelling in the enjoyment of God. And so then, notice then that, um, um, anyways, yeah, yeah. So it's likely that the reason we struggle with prayer is that we don't find God enjoyable. The next time you, st- you struggle with prayer, ask yourself, do I really find God enjoyable? And the honest answer will probably be, not right this moment. I think that's a very serious question and worth asking and examining. But notice that David cannot help himself. Verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Every time I hear that, your right hand upholds me language, it comes up here, it comes up in Psalm 73, it comes up in other places. Every time I hear this, your right hand upholds me. Um, when it shows up in the Psalms, it takes my mind back to when I was a little kid, standing on the street, and my dad was next to me, and he says, come on, son, let's cross the street. And he reaches his right hand down, and he grabbed my hand, and he held me. And we walked across the street. I knew I was safe and invincible. My daddy had me. You know what I'm saying? Your right hand upholds me. The same kind of fatherly picture. And that fits beautifully. It's a great, a great statement. And so after acknowledging David's neediness, his dry and desiccated heart, having this attitude of a dependent spirit, he also goes on to explain or to describe his enjoying God, enjoying God who slakes his thirst and sates his craving. He comes now to lay out his problem and his petition, um, and he petitions God's actions. And that's the last few verses, verses 9-11. to So notice that David now moves right into his desperation, desperation that showed him how much he needed God. He, He actually doesn't ask him as we think of it. Sometimes you can make statements and they're actually questions. This happens in my house all the time. Right? Where statements are made and it's actually a question that's there. And that's the kind of thing here. He makes these statements, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. It's what he wants to happen to them. He wants them to stop hounding him and harming him. He makes this statement, but at the same time, it's in a prayer. And so there's a petitionary aspect. So notice that David moves into his desperation, into a, uh, a desperation that shows how much he needed God. And he does it at the end. It, it, it almost follows slightly the Lord's Prayer's pattern, right? The Lord's Prayer. Father who art in heaven, beginning with our need of God. Our Father who art in heaven. And then comes the petition. Right? Hallowed be thy name. It's not about me, it's about God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, not about me, but about God. And then it comes to my need. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Leave us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. And so Psalm 63 follows a very similar pattern. David waits till he gets to the end to get to his petition because what's important? I want God. I need God. 
and enjoy God. He's the one who satisfies. He's the one who saves. He's the one who sustains. He spends time dwelling on who God is and what He has done and so forth. So David moves now to asking God, to petitioning God. And I think David Wells, this is that paper, that article that was back there, uh, I think David Wells can help us as he describes petitionary prayer. He puts it in this article that he wrote back, clear back in 1979 that was published in Christianity Today, but it's out there, it's still on quite a few websites. I guess he gave lots of people permission to reprint it. Um, and he says this, he says, petitionary prayer is in essence, rebellion. Petitionary prayer is, in essence, rebellion. Rebellion against the world in its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. Petition is the undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is a refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. As such, it is an expression of the unbridgeable chasm that separates good from evil. The declaration that evil is not a variation on good, but it's antithesis. That's what David is doing here. These guys are after him. It's an injustice. And do you know who these guys would be? If he's in the wilderness at this point, who would likely be these guys that are chasing him down, trying to kill him? Anybody remember? The King Saul. Supposed to be a fellow church member. Right? This is somebody close and personal, so it even hurts worse. You know what I'm saying? It's one thing if somebody out there that I've never met is after me, but it's another thing if Neil comes after me. Right? Because I know Neil. Do you get it? I mean, this is, this is pain, so he knows this is not right. And so I think David Wells is exactly on target. Petitionary prayer is rebellion. It's a refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. It's this absolute undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. So let me go a little bit more on that. My friends... Christians in North America are the whiniest, gripiest bunch of people I have known. We gripe about everything. We complain. We make ourselves victims. We tell everybody we're martyrs and we're victims. You know what we should be doing? We should be on our faces, on our knees. We should be praying about those things instead of whining and complaining. We should be in this absolute undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively, pervasively abnormal. That's where we should go first and always. But instead, what do we do? It's a conspiracy. The government's out to get us. Look at all this anti-Christian persecution. Let's go publish it on Facebook and out in the news. So we sound like a bunch of whiny victims. How about people who really believe God, who want God, who enjoy God, who believe that God is the only one who can satisfy, save, and sustain, going on their knees and their faces and saying, God, I can't do diddly about this, but you can, I believe it, and we're here together to pour out our hearts about it. It's abnormal. It's unrighteous. It's ungodly. It doesn't go with what you want. And so hear our prayer. That's where we should go. 
change maybe our demeanor about the things that really scare us and concern us. So my friends, we often, how often do we immediately push to the forefront our problems and petitions? We make them almost the first thing we do when we pray, and then we find that we've run out of time, we've run out of energy and desire to declare our attitude of a dependent spirit. Maybe we should start inverting what we normally do and start praying with God's plentifulness in mind, like Psalm 63. Start praying with God's desirableness in mind. And then come around to our problems and petitions. Maybe the place we should go first in our prayers, Lord, do I really want you? I do want you. And spend some time there. Lord, do I need you? Yeah, I do need you. And spend some time there. Lord, I really want to be, I want to enjoy you. I love the, you've heard me say it before, Augustine's Confessions. Chapter, book 10, paragraph 22. There's a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake whose joy you yourself are. This is the happy life, to rejoice to you, of you, for you. This is true joy. A good place to actually begin before we get to our troubles and our problems and our worries. And then when we finally do get to our worries, kind of following what David's doing here a little bit, allow our troubles and allow our turmoil to show, to slow us down and let them school us on our, with our attitude of a dependent spirit, our dependent need on God. And then to get into the problems themselves and ask God's remediation. I'm going to give you an example, okay? I'm going to ask you to go with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. So everybody turn over to 1 Kings 8. First Kings 8, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read, just drop down to verse 37 through 40. First Kings 8. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple. The temple has not been um, uh, entered into except to be fixed or to be built, but it's not been actually used in worship until this moment. This is the moment. And so Solomon is going to pray. It's a prayer of dedication. And there's a... It's a long and lengthy prayer of dedication. And it follows a specific pattern, but there's something unique when you get down to verse 37. So here's what he says in verse 37. If there's a famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their, enemies besieges, besie, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague... Mark that word, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction. In the Hebrew word, that word is the same word as plague. If there's a plague in the land and the people finally come to see the plague in their heart, Solomon says, do you get the connection? If there's a plague in the land and the people finally realize there's a plague in their heart and they pray. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and answer. That is hugely instructive. Very often, our external circumstances can be a reflection of what's going on internally. 
when it's, when it's drought, you know, we just had a drought, right? I'm going to give you a story about a drought in Midland in just a minute. We just had a drought. How many people stop to say, my heart looks like that? My relationship with you, Lord, looks like this dry, watered up, or dried up creek bed over here. How many times did we stop to do that? But that's what Solomon is driving at. When there's a plague, and then when they realize there's a, their heart is plagued, then hear from heaven. So when we were in Midland, the year before we left, we came here, Midland is used to getting 14 inches of rain a year. That's a great year, right? 14 inches. But that year, it was half an inch for the whole year. My front yard looked like the Sahara. My backyard looked like the Mojave, right? I mean, it was just dry. So we were part of the Ministerial Alliance. I had been president for a couple of years, and when my time was up, they had term limits. And so my friend Larry Long, who was at a Christian Missionary Alliance church, he became president again. And we're getting together for our, our monthly Ministerial Alliance meeting. We've been praying about the drought, praying for God to send rain. Nothing has happened. Finally, one meeting, Larry actually stopped all the ministers, and he said, look, brother, before we start praying for God to fix the the drought out there, maybe we need to stop and ask him to fix the drought in here. That's what Solomon is talking about. Allowing our troubles and turmoils to school us. Maybe the problem is just as, as being pictured out there, but it's the same problem. It's the problem that's actually in here. Allowing it to school us. And so let me end here then. The series is not uh, to demoralize us it's okay if we walk out of here convicted, seeing the lack and, the, and, and seeing the lack and longing for more in prayer. But the aim of the whole series is motivation, encouragement, excitement. I'm planning on you leaving each Sunday evening wanting God more and wanting more of God. Wanting God more and wanting more of God. Enjoying Him more. Because I mean, that fuels our prayers. I'm aspiring, use it a picture, I'm aspiring to stoke the embers, lying under the ashes, adding a few black oak limbs, and then blowing those embers and watching the flames burst forth. If you like camping, that was a good one, right? Yeah. And so as you leave tonight, and then tomorrow morning as you rise and get out of bed, three C words I'd like you to keep in mind. First off, contest, contest your heart. Contest your heart's desire for God. How much do you really long to have Him? How much do you really long to have Him? How much do you really desire to come close to Him? I would encourage you to take Psalm 63, verses 1 and 4. Let it start your daily prayers every morning. Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry, weary land where there's no water, etc. Maybe spend a minute or two ruminating on those verses in conversation with God before you move on in your prayers. So contest your heart, your heart's desire for God. Secondly, consent. Consent to your impotence. Consent to your impotence and let it draw you to God's omnipotence. Consent to your impotence and let it draw you to God's omnipotence. Again, as Al Mohler put it in his great book on prayer, prayer discloses much about us. It discloses our assumptions and convictions. It discloses our view of God. 
and ourselves. It discloses our priorities and our assumptions about God's priority. It discloses our doctrines of God, man, sin, redemption, the world, and a host of other theological matters. If we really want to know what a person believes, we should listen to them pray. So, being good Calvinists, consent to your impotence and let it draw you to God's omnipotence. Here's the last C word. Call into question your, your docility or at least your resignation toward the evil in the world. Sometimes we find it much more enjoyable to run around complaining instead of really actually saying to God, this is abnormal and you're the only one who can do And so call into question your resignation toward the evil in the world. So I'm going to end, we're going to end every sermon with William Cooper's quote, his statement that you saw on the picture. If you go see the, look at the picture, I sent it out all month long, and there's this great statement by William Cooper from the 18th century. I love it. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for Psalm 63 and the reminder. And the challenging reminder, the reflection. Lord, do we really enjoy you? Do we really want you? Lord, we confess to You that there are times we don't want You and there are times we don't enjoy You. Forgive us for those times, Lord. Stoke our hearts. Warm us up. Bring us again to see the enjoyment You are to us. For You truly, as Augustine pointed out, You truly give joy to those who are Your people. You are that joy. So I pray that each and every one of us would come to enjoy You fully and deeply. We would want you. And then from there, Lord, that attitude of a dependent spirit would flow and thrive. So, Lord, I pray that if anyone is discouraged in prayer, that this would be the beginning of their encouragement. Lift our hearts. Again, in the words of Ezra, I pray that, that you would brighten our eyes and send us, send us a little revival. In Jesus' name.